Good morning, Red Mountain. Um, it really it's, it's an honor, a privilege to be here. With my role with REF International, I get to visit a lot of different churches, particularly PCA churches here in the city. And uh, um, I'm so encouraged. We, we have an incredible denomination with a lot of great churches. And yours is one of them. Uh, it's every, every one of the, one of, uh, everyone is different. Uh, but some things do stand out. Some things that stand about your church is, uh, one, y'all have the best worship venue, hands down. I love, I love this. This is, you can't, you can't top this. Um, you also have probably the highest ratio of children to adults. <laughs> and I think you take the prize for having those stand-up sit-downs in a, during a service, you know, you to come worship God and get a squat workout. Um, but your pastors, you have, I think, the most encouraging pastors in the city. Uh, Charles and Matt have been just wonderful friends and, and really, really do have the gift of encouragement. And I greatly appreciate the effort and the attention that's gone into today's worship bulletin, the service. Uh, working with Jeff, he, he was several weeks ahead asking me for details as he's thoughtfully preparing and planning um, the songs, uh, the readings. So uh, a lot of work and prayer uh, is put into this service, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And thank you. As a church, you you support us with our ministry at, at, RU, at UAB with the internationals. Um, many of you have come uh, to our dinner and discussions and have helped feed students. You've helped provide meals at a time of, just of on Thursday nights, of gathering around uh, food and, and just talking with people from all around the world. So thank you for your ministry and helping do some, some service for other families. So you really, you're a loving church and I appreciate your, greatly appreciate the help you've given us. Um, so yes, yeah, so thank you. And if, I, I like to make this announcement, if you'd like to, one of the ways that I've found that I've been able to serve the international community, we can serve the international community, is through furniture. If you have an old sofa, mattress, desk, kitchen table you're trying to get rid of, um, there's a big need. We've just, many of the students that come from overseas are paying high tuition rates and, uh, they're, they're, they're scraping by to get here. And so they, they have to live off campus and off campus housing apartments and they're, they're unfurnished. So we like to collect furniture from those who, who are ready to get rid of something and take it to them and say, hey, this is from a, a church in town. We love you. This is a free gift. And I've met a lot of people that way. So it's been a, it's a, a great way to, uh, to, to boost uh, my ministry with these wonderful people. But um, so let's, but let's get into our text. Um, do, y'all, do y'all stand and read or just want me to read? Okay, All right? <laughs> so we're not going to stand. Uh, you know, just no, one more rep, right? Okay, so here we go. Um, Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. 
And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. This is God's word. Father, as we uh, examine this text, send us your spirit, fill us with your spirit, that we would hear, that we would understand, that we'd be comforted, that we'd draw close, draw close to you. O Christ, in your name we pray, amen. Um, If you're taking notes, you probably shouldn't. My goal here is to just get to be immersed in the text, but we are Presbyterian, and I am supposed to have a three-point outline, so if, you, if you're hungry for an outline, we're going to talk about the, the background to the narrative, then the movements of the narrative, then some takeaways. The background to the narrative, movements of the narrative, and some takeaways. But really, what I want to do is, is this is, this is a, an interesting passage, is it not? Um, quite, quite jarring, uh, Christ's behavior here. So what is going on? Well, we need to back up and look, look, set the stage. One, this Matthew, and if we're looking at this as, as, as writers or as storytellers, this is an incredibly well-written narrative. The way Matthew, with each phrase, just turns up the tension. It's, it's, it's masterful writing. Uh, but beginning with what he says here, beginning with it, then Jesus withdrew. He withdrew away. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus and the disciples tried to withdraw. Previously, a few chapters earlier, a few days before this, uh, John the Baptist was beheaded. The news of his beheading had reached the disciples. And that, that was incredibly devastating. Incredibly devastating news. And so Christ tries to take the disciples away to, uh, for, to, to, to grieve. But instead, they're met with a large crowd... And that's when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. There, and that's where he feeds, gives, he preaches, and he feeds, that's when he feeds the 5,000. Uh, so a, a, a very exhausting uh, day or two of ministry. And then that's when Christ goes up on the mountain, sends the disciples away to go on the boat, other side of the, of, of the Sea of Galilee. And that's when uh, the big storm comes. And then, then Jesus comes walking on the water, and when Peter gets out of the boat, uh, walks towards Christ, and then he begins to sink. Uh, and Christ says, oh, where, where's your faith, Peter? So then finally they get to the other side, and uh, still in need of rest, and, and still in need of grieving. Uh, and yet, instead of finding peace and quiet, the crowds find Christ and the disciples again. So there's more, there's more talk, there's more debate, there's an argument about the bread. Uh, and then finally they withdraw again. Imagine their exhaustion. And so he goes to the region of, they withdraw away from the Jewish areas, and they withdraw to um, the area of Tyre and Sidon. So what? If you look on a map, it's on the beach. So yes, going down to Destin, getting some time on the beach, a little vacation there. Well, that's not what the original audience would have heard. To the Jews, Tyre and Sidon are close cousins to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
You've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities which were destroyed by fire in Abraham's time because of their perversion and rebellion against God. Well, like, Tyre and Sod- like Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon had defiled its name through idolatry and immorality. Isaiah has a whole chapter dedicated to the destruction or to the judgment of Tyre and Sidon. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah also have prophecies against this region. Um, but whereas God had already judged Sodom and Gomorrah, the Jews were still awaiting God's judgment of Tyre and Sidon. So perhaps when they heard this story and Matthew's telling the story, maybe they're wondering, is now the time? You know, is, is now the judgment? Get out some of that anger, that angst against these immoral, defiled people. So when Matthew says Tyre and Sidon, he's turning up the tension, turning up the heat of this narrative. Then the third point, if you get the background, another important part of the background of this story as you go into the narrative, is that Matthew says, behold, which is very spiritual sounding, and behold, the Canaanite woman came out. Matthew's saying, hey, guess what, guys? You're not going to believe what happens next. Another great literary use, uh, literary uh, tool to catch our attention. Something is about to happen. A Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman comes out. Now, A common Jewish prayer at the time for men was this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, so far so good, who has not created me to be a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Well, this woman has two strikes against her. She's a Gentile, she's a woman, and her daughter is enslaved or mastered by some demonic power. What's interesting is that Mark tells this same story. But in his gospel, he calls her the Syrophoenician woman. So which is she? Is she the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman? Technically, if you, if, at the time, like, Syrophoenician is the correct term. That area is, is, is the Syrophoenician area. And so what's really interesting is if, if the, the historians, sociologists say that at this time, the, the Canaanites were long gone as a people group. No one self-identified as Canaanites. The Canaanites were, back in the time of the Promised Land, when Joshua and, and the Israelites moved into the Promised Land, the Canaanites, they were, the Canaanites occupied the area of the Promised Land. They were to eradicate because of their idolatry, because of their, they were not to be defiled by their, their idolatrous practices. So yet, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, uses this term, which means... It only mean one thing, that they were still using the phrase Canaanite to refer to the people from this area as a derogatory, kind of like those people, those people who should be wiped off from the face of the earth. Perhaps it's a racial slur. It has that kind of connotation that it's, it's looking at, from a Jewish perspective, someone from a, a, a sociological, religious, ethnic minority, ethnic um, Someone lower than, than, than them, than the Jews. So you feel the tension in Tyre and Sidon, and now this woman, a Canaanite woman, is approaching. So, with the table set, let's look at the different movements. Nine. Nine movements. We'll go quickly, but nine different movements, and seeing what, what the Lord has to, sh- to share with us through this. So, first one now. So, look, diving into the narrative, the movements of the narrative. One, the desperate crying. We don't, we're not told exactly how the woman heard, but she somehow knew. And she must have been following the rumors of this accounts of a Jewish healer, 
and teacher, and that he was now in their area, in her neighborhood. She was in a dark and desperate place. Why? Because her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. What does that mean? Severely oppressed by a demon. We're told in other gospel accounts that there was another boy who was severely oppressed by a demon that would throw him into water and fire to try to take his life. There's a story of Legion who was full of many demons who was, um, the, the demons made him uh, run around naked in the tombs. That's embarrassing. But what about, but this is like, we have all these demonic stories uh, back then, but that was then, right? Well, you know, as, as Westerner, as Western you know, American Christians, uh, we, we, we kind of go, that was back then, or, or that, that, you know, this, it's just, very rarely do we have any stories of demonic encounters ourselves. But as I've got to know, talk to certain people, I hear there's some interesting stories. Um, a friend of mine, a pastor in the PCA, in our denomination, uh, in a different city, was telling me his story. He was a young, when he was a teenager, uh, he was struggling with, is God real or not? And one, he was, he was driving with his parents, and as, as he tells the story, he could sense an evil, dark presence outside the car as he's driving along. And suddenly had this nearly irresistible urge to drive off the road and take their lives. It was all he could do to keep his hands on the wheel and drive, and, and, and drive home. When he got home, his parents knew something was wrong. All night long, he was severely oppressed, what he knew clearly to be a demonic spirit. His parents didn't know what to do. I don't think they were believers. They had no idea what to do. And the next morning, though, they go to church, and a pastor uh, explains what's going on, prays for him, and he's better. That was what God used to bring him to Christ. When he realized, as he's struggling, is God real or not? When he realized that the demons are real, because you just had one attack you, uh, he knew that God also must be real. I've never experienced anything like what I'm about to share, but as I've traveled around the world and, and talked to other missionaries, particularly from Nepal and India, they also had stories of, uh, of demonic oppression. During worship services, both, both people from these areas said that um, during worship services, sometimes people would fall on the ground and take on like a snake-like shape in their face and, and wiggle on the floor. Sounds really weird and, and gross, eerie. But this is what they say. And I don't share these stories to be sensational. One, to give you hope, or to give you to give us encouragement. In all those situations, prayer in the name of Christ took the demon power away. There's power in the name of Christ, as we're about to see in this story. But also, though, to uh, realize that to, to stir our compassion, that demonic oppression is real, and this poor daughter whatever her symptoms were, was, was being severely oppressed. And every parent in this room can identify with this mother's struggle, with her brokenness to help, to reach, to, to do anything to help her child. So she comes with desperate crying. Now, the second part of the, the second movement, we get the uncomfortable silence. She comes to Jesus, crying out, and he answers her not a word. The silence of Jesus. How long 
was this silence. We don't know, but it was long enough for the disciples to come to Jesus and say, hey, master, do something about this, which is the third movement of the narrative, the uncompassionate begging. Matthew says that they, he's talking about himself, they came to Jesus begging him to do something. Send her away, Lord, for she is crying out after us. Now maybe they, this, the, they weren't asking Jesus to heal her. They just wanted her to go away. Maybe they were hoping Jesus would do the healing and then she'd leave or maybe just make her leave. But what's interesting is back in Matthew 10, the disciples had already been sent out and they've already been given power to heal the sick and to, to exercise the demonic powers. So why did they do anything? They could have done something, surely, right? They didn't try to help her. Why not? We have the fourth movement, the exclusion. So they, he looks at, within earshot of the woman, Jesus looks at the disciples and says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's true. When Christ sent the disciples out in Matthew 10, he does say, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go and, go and do these healings. Preach the gospel. Preach the, the, the kingdom of heaven and, and, and cast out demons in my name to the Israelites. But we're told that at the end of Matthew, by the end of the gospel, we get the great commission. Go to all the world. Paul tells us in Romans that the gospel is first for the Jew, also for the Gentile. In John, we're told God so loves the world. So why is Christ here bringing up this exclusion? It's, there's more here than we can go into. But it's true that he came first. His ministry was primarily to the Jews. But I think what Christ is doing here is he's having to. He's, and what Matthew is showing us is Jesus is taking the Jewish expectation that their Messiah was going to be a Jewish king to make the Jewish nation the, 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 the center of the world. Christ is taking that notion and turning it upside down and saying, no, I'm here for everyone. But how do we get there? Because the woman hears this. The woman hears Jesus say, I'm not here for you. So what does she do? That's the fifth movement of the narrative, the humble kneeling. When she hears Christ say, sorry, I'm not here for you. She comes closer. She kneels before Christ. And then she says the most beautiful prayer. The shortest and most beautiful prayer in all of scripture. Lord, help me. If you're looking for one takeaway from this sermon, this is it. If one prayer to, keep, to always keep with us, moment after moment, day after day, Lord, help me. Richard Foster calls this kind of prayer a breath prayer. You can say it in one breath, again and again and again. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She takes on this posture of helplessness. Now, imagine, take, even if you're not a Christian, you're here for the first time, or you only know a little bit about, about Jesus, you know that he's this compassionate person, right? This loving leader, kind-hearted, Tender. We've sung about his mercy. 
Yet what does Jesus do when this woman is now right before him, kneeling, saying, help me? We get the, the, the sixth movement of our narrative. He says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Now, if, if your Bible has footnotes, it probably has there an, an, an attempt to make this not an insult, saying that there's the, in the Greek there's a diminutive on the word dog, so it meaning a little dog, uh, perhaps suggesting that this was the, he's talking about a pet, a domesticated, you know, little, little family pet. But the commentaries I read said, no, that's, we're trying to cover for Jesus. He's, he's saying something that is sounding apparently very insulting. He is calling her a dog in a time, in a, in a culture where, where dogs are pretty much these, these raggedy street creatures that you wouldn't want in your house. It's, there's something very insulting about this. Yet, why? What's going on here? I think two reasons. The first reason is, a, is the seventh movement of this narrative, the great faith. The woman's response, and she must have been young. She had a young child. Women got married young in those, had, had that, 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 that culture. She's probably a young woman. But Christ tells her this, gives her this insult. And what does she do? Think about this. All the time, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the lawyers were trying to trip up Jesus to undo him, to catch him, to trap him at his words. This woman, she's, her response is beautiful. It's brilliant. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. When she says this, and Jesus knew she would say it, he was he was. He was Bring her in. He knew what was in her. He was setting her up so the others that we could see her great faith. And when she says this, when her faith shines out, she becomes the only woman in Scripture, only person in Scripture to hear these words. Great is your faith. There's one other person who's told, by, told that he had great faith. It was a centurion also coming for the healing of a child. But the context suggests that the man had left and that Jesus told the crowd, great was his, great is his faith. But she gets to hear Christ say, great is your faith. Peter is also there hearing Christ praise her. Peter, who's part of the group, begging Jesus to send her away. Peter, who a few nights before had heard Christ say, where's your faith? As he's sinking into the water. Well, I think there's a second reason that Christ says this. Why he said the comment about, I'm only here for the lost sheep of of the house of Israel, and this bread is only for uh, the only, I can't give the, the bread, the children's bread to the dogs. I think a second reason is this. This is Eastern writing. We are Westerners. We're used to, in our, in our, our class, our, you know, seventh grade, English classes, we were taught, you know, say exactly what you mean. Your thesis statement should be very clear, and you know, say what you mean, mean what you say. But in, in Eastern writing, I got to experience this as a teacher in China, 
there is a very different way of thinking, very different way of, of writing, that the meaning is often outside of the words, that, that you are given the story but no commentary. You're given the story and you're meant to think and dive into it and wonder, this is weird, what's going on here? I think this is one of those moments, at least the theologian Kenneth Bailey, who wrote Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, writes this. He, said, he suggests that Jesus not only knew what was in the woman's heart, not only saw her great faith, but Jesus also knew the prejudice that was inside his disciples' minds and hearts. So, when he gives this insult, Christ is speaking aloud the insult and the, the prejudices inside the minds of the disciples. He's saying what they're thinking. He says how they're treating her to convict them. So in one moment, Christ is bringing out her great faith and quite possibly rebuking and bringing conviction into the disciples. So what happens next? Movement eight, the swift healing. The daughter is instantly healed. Jesus grants her her heart's desire. Imagine her joy. And then the last part, the ninth movement, this is the exponential healing. Christ had just said, I'd only come for the house of Israel. But what happens next is very likely a, a Gentile revival. That Christ, the, Jesus had just fed 5,000. What he does now, he feeds 4,000 more the same way, with just a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, he feeds about 4,000, 4,000 Gentiles as this another, another massive ministry of healing to the Gentiles, to the Canaanites. The disciples are thinking, wait, Christ, you came only for the, for the Jews, right? Jesus is saying, no. I came for all who have faith in me. This is part of him shifting their perspective, preparing them for the Great Commission, preparing them from thinking Christ is the Messiah is here just for the Jews to no, Christ is here for all who are broken, all who have faith in him. So what are the takeaways? First, get around internationals. Get around people from other ethnicities and watch what happens. Christ, when he takes his, when they withdraw to an international area, things happen. Interesting people show up and things are revealed in your heart. So great takeaway is come get involved at UAB or just the people around you or just notice when you're walking through the grocery store and see a woman in a hijab how do you feel about that? What notice your, your reaction inside your heart? Your emotions? You scared? Do you have compassion? Be open to the ways Christ might be just moving inside of you as you're around those who are different from you. Different countries, different ethnic backgrounds, different religions. You know, uh, before I took this job years ago, I was hanging out with an, an, a Vietnam vet who got involved with a friendship partner ministry at UAB with internationals run by Briarwood. And he was paired, he's a Vietnam vet, he was paired with a Vietnamese woman. He and his wife were partners with his Vietnamese woman. He didn't realize how much racism he still had in his heart. 
until God paired him with her. And through that year-long friendship, deep healing happened inside of him because he's willing to get around international. Second takeaway. In this story, there are two ways to come to Jesus. The two kinds of people that all the movement, all the movement is towards Christ. We have the woman in desperation asking for her daughter to be healed. She loses face with her running, her crying, her kneeling. Had she remained proud and dignified, her daughter never would have been healed. Dane Orland has some helpful words for us on the nature of despair. If you feel stuck, defeated by old sin patterns, leverage that despair into healthy, into a healthy sense of self-futility. That is the door through which you must pass if you're to get real spiritual traction. He also says despair is a great prerequisite to everything else. It is our dismay and emptiness that God lives. Our despair is all that he needs to work with. Are you broken? Are we in despair? It's a good place. It's a very good place to be. But that is, Christ is drawn to that. He's drawn to our wounds, our weakness, our brokenness. And the woman, when she meets the silence of Christ, which that's hard, when you're praying and hear no answer, when you're seeking but get no response from God, the woman tells us what she models what to do. When we hear the silence of Jesus, we move closer. Move closer. Fall on your knees before him. Consider fasting. Talk to our elders. Sign up for a mission trip. Is Jesus saying something that's difficult to understand? Seemingly offensive? Countercultural? There are parts of the Bible we don't like. Move closer. Dive into those texts. Move closer. Have long, open conversations with Jesus. Weeks long, months long, years long conversations about the past. I recently, a friend, a good friend of mine, uh, recently sent me a video of John Piper just encouraging us to take moments to just weep. Weep over what hasn't been and be willing to give ourselves a moment to weep over what has been. We need time to weep before Christ. There can be healing. The woman represents the healthy way to come to Christ. The disciples represent the other ways to come to Christ. They still come. It's good for them. They still come, and they, they, they get they're, they're taught, they're convicted. They came annoyed, wanting Jesus to cast out the annoying woman. They model the struggle that all of us are sure to encounter the longer we are Christians and in ministry. We lose the desperation of, of being the young believer. We get compassion fatigue. We start to turn into Pharisees. 
And we come to Jesus when we're annoyed. The good news is that Jesus doesn't abandon us like he didn't abandon the disciples. He brings to light the shade in our hearts. He exposes our hypocrisy if we're willing to listen. Jesus gives both, the disciples and the woman, what they need. To one, the healing. To the others, the rebuke. Third takeaway. See how this text draws us to the cross? At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he will be severely oppressed by demons. Consider this. The scriptures say Satan entered Judas before he betrayed Christ. So when, when Judas kisses Christ, Satan is in him. Satan is in Judas when he kisses Christ. And surely the trial and torture of Christ was full of demonic pleasure. On the cross, Jesus takes the full force of sin and demonic power onto himself, into himself, to break his power through his death so we can escape it. Also, on the cross, Jesus hears the silence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's cries are met with silence all the way to the grave, all the way to death. Jesus endured the silence of God so that we can hear the Father say to all who believe in him, Welcome, child, into my kingdom. And finally, the fourth final point. Let this story... Help us deeply savor what we're about to do next. We're about to have communion. Where we literally get to eat crumbs from the master's table. We are the the Canaanites. We are the Gentiles. Christ has opened up himself, opened up his body, so that we could come and feast on him. What we get to do next is is exactly what this woman was saying we get to do. We get to eat from the master's table. We get to drink the cup of wine from the master's table, all because of Christ. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but sheer, pure grace. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the ultimate foreigner on earth. Although you were born a Jew and came to your own people, they didn't welcome you. You were cast out, despised, and rejected. Ever since we brought sin into the earth, we've made it a place hostile to all that is holy and good. And into this dark, sinful landscape, you entered as a ray of light to make a way for us to return home so that your kingdom can be our kingdom, your table, our table. Jesus, your Father is now our Father. The cost of our return home is the price of your blood. We deserve to be the outcasts of the garden, yet you, Christ, became the defiled outcast of heaven taking the Father's judgment on yourself 
so that we can enter into your kingdom, a kingdom we do not deserve, but are welcomed in, not as strangers or foreigners, but as those who belong by grace through faith. O Christ, your name we pray, the spirit you've given us. Amen.